Welcome to Healthcare and Hire, a podcast for healthcare professionals and aspiring healthcare executives looking for information, association, and inspiration from higher-level leaders across the healthcare industry. I'm Iqbal Acha, career consultant, healthcare recruiter, and registered pharmacist. Every week, I sit down to interview healthcare executives, clinical leaders, medical entrepreneurs, and industry experts to learn how they got to where they are today, what they see as the future of healthcare, and what they're doing to make healthcare more accessible, affordable, and effective. Let's find out more about today's guest. Dr. Shaheen Lakhan is the Chief Medical Officer at Click Therapeutics. He leads teams who help drive the discovery, development, and implementation of prescription digital therapeutics and works to transform medicine by unlocking classically undruggable pathways. Dr. Lakhan has more than 20 years of experience in healthcare, academia, and industry. In addition to being a CMO, he continues to serve patients as a practicing neurologist and pain specialist at Mount Auburn Hospital. He is also a professor of neurology, neuroscience, and medicine at Western University, Virginia Tech, and Morehouse School of Medicine. Dr. Lacan received his medical degree from the Israel Institute of Technology and is board certified in both neurology and pain medicine with clinical training from Cleveland Clinic and Massachusetts General Hospital. Hello, Dr. Lacan. Welcome to the Healthcare and Higher podcast. Hi there, Iqbal. It's great to see you. It's great to see you too. I'm excited. I know that you've had a, a very tumultuous week uh, with some of the flights and the travels and the flight cancellations. It's a uh, it's a pleasure to have you here, knowing the circumstances that you've gone through just to to make it. Uh, Dr. Lakhan, I know that many of my listeners are probably meeting you for the first time. Why don't we take this opportunity and have you formally introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about who you are, what your role is, and how do you help take healthcare to a higher level. Oh, appreciate the question and the positive conclusion there. So uh, my name is Shaheen Lakhan. I'm uh, Boston and Miami-based. I am professionally a neurologist and pain management specialist, but I've had a whirlwind of careers and career pathways. I currently serve as the chief medical officer of Click Therapeutics, and uh, we advance prescription drug, uh, uh, prescription digital therapeutics as a new category of medicine. That's fantastic. Yeah, there's a lot of conversation about prescription digital therapeutics. And so I'm extremely honored to have you here on the show and, and kind of gain some insights in terms of what is happening in this burgeoning field, 
how healthcare is going to change dramatically because of it. Uh, and we're going to dive all into that. Uh, for the listeners that are hearing about Click Therapeutics for the first time, I kind of want to give some background about it so that people have a better understanding of what your organization is and how it operates. It was founded in 2012. Uh, and what Click Therapeutics does is it develops, validates, and commercializes software as prescription medical treatments. Uh, so for current treatments, I know that Click Therapeutics is focusing on a variety of disease states, including acute coronary syndrome, schizophrenia, major depressive disorder, as well as migraine, smoking cessation, and insomnia. Uh, and it's not just the fact that you're focusing on these major disease states that you know have huge uh, cost burdens uh, on the healthcare system and the, the, the personal sacrifice that has to go through on patients, uh, but you've built up several impressive partnerships along the way as well in order to be able to bring that to the forefront. So I know that you've partnered with Boringer Ingelheim, the Massachusetts Medical Society, Otsuka Pharmaceuticals, Solera Health, and variety more. Um, and so, you know, I'm really excited to have you on the show and kind of give some of more, you know, details about those partnerships and how you operate. Um, but, you know, when we think about prescription digital therapeutics, right, many of the listeners today are probably familiar uh, with another a company that was, you know, making headlines very recently, unfortunately, due to bankruptcy and that was pair therapeutics. And so, you know, when I, when I think about prescription digital therapeutics, like there's a lot of trepidation about like what the future looks like um, because we want it to be successful, but payers and, and you know, insurance companies may, you know, require more proof or uh, want more studies. You know, what has it been like to come into this space, right? Like, I would love to understand a little bit more about when you first entered this role, uh, you know, something obviously about this position attracted you, but more importantly, what the what the company does. Um, share with me a little bit about some of the, the origins of Click Therapeutics, if you would, um, and tell me a little bit about how, you know, it's working its way into becoming more mainstream rather than this outlier that we're hoping, you know, will become an, uh, a massive uh, win. Absolutely. And I'll just start off with basic behaviors. So more often than not, when you wake up, you actually engage your smartphone rather than your bedfellow, right? You're checking the news, exactly. Maybe stopping the alarm, uh, you know, whatever you're trying to do. And then also when it comes time to go to sleep, right? You're engaging with your smartphone, setting maybe alarm for soothing music or completing some of your apps and banking and uh, news feeds and all of that, right? So the genesis of the company was take already a behavior that's been well-established, right? And now instead of just consumerism for entertainment purposes or convenience of life, let's actually apply it to improving healthcare outcomes. And don't just claim to do that. Actually create bona fide solutions, get them regulatorily approved, do the right studies and the evidence packages that payers actually want to pay for it and patients actually want to use these types of solutions. That was the whole genesis of Click Therapeutics. And we started off with probably the most addictive substance in the world, if you look at you know, the number of people addicted to it, tobacco. Yeah. and tobacco use disorder, smoking, right? And so we created a smoking cessation program uh, where it was declared a public health epidemic. And the FDA said, I'm not even going to regulate these. I'm actually going to exempt myself from regulating technologies, medical devices, solutions for this problem because I don't want to hinder innovation. So here we are, bright light in our mind that let's develop this solution. This becomes the sandbox where we learn how to engage people. 
to use this. We learn how to break things down to the daily bite-sized mis- missions so people feel a sense of accomplishment and don't just turn off the app after its first use, right? 80% of dropout right. happens um, after you download something from the app store if you do engage in the first So here, are you peering into yeah. my world? Because this is how I am. You got it. You got it. I think the way to crack the code here is you apply the, the 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 rigors of clinical sciences, but then you don't want to create a lab experiment, right? An academic exercise. And then what we've learned from consumer-centric companies and engagement sciences, and apply both. I almost make that akin to a PKPD relationship. And if you combine both, you get healthcare outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this is a remarkable. I'm super excited uh, like how you're describing this, right? So, you know, I, I'm always curious, right? Because I know, as you as you pointed out, like academically, it sounds wonderful in a, in a lab. Uh, it's, you know, very, uh, you know, it sounds so pristine and obviously the outcomes will be that way. But when you bring it into reality, like, you know, I'm very curious to know, like, the, what is the adoption rate been like from a patient perspective? And then what are the conversations that you must be having with either providers and payers alike to help educate them, right? Because this is novel therapy. This is something that most people have never thought of. And, and I'm an older person, right? So I mean, I'm still kind of, you know, going along in that in that line where it's like, well, you know, we've never done this before. So I'm more skeptical, whereas younger generational, uh, younger generations are more quick to adopt that. So I'm curious to know, like, you know, what are some of the conversations that take place? Um, what what pushback may have you may you may have received uh, and how you've been able to help overcome that for those individual parties? Oh, yeah, I think it's a great question because actually it's probably the third pillar that I focus on. So once we got the secret sauce of the clinical and engagement sciences and develop our clinical products, the next almost bottleneck or what we want to reverse and become an enabler is implementation yeah. of our solutions, right, in into to daily life and practices. And for the last 15 years since I've been, you know, a physician and neurologist, I've been recommending applications. But I've not been prescribing applications. I've been reflecting on my own experience. Why? And it's because we've been ingrained that we have drug products and they've gone through a series of phased research and they have the right safety, tolerability, and efficacy profile, right? Multiple well-controlled trials, repeated dosing. If you get off of it, well, we know their half-life, we know durability of effect and all of that that goes along. Hey, we have healthcare uh, cost analyses and utilization rates and so on that's going on board. Thus far, that that same level of rigor has not been applied to prescription digital therapeutics, nor has the implementation. How does a, a small clinic, a solo clinic implement yeah. this? How does a dispensing pharmacy, a digital pharmacy implement this, right? Is this an access code that's on the app store? Does this have to do eligibility checks through insurance coverages? Here's the potential, and this is what we're trying to live out. Before a patient leaves the encounter, and the encounter could be virtual, a televisit, could be on site, the patient engages in their therapy. Imagine that. That breaks the whole paradigm. We know right now, if I write a script, 60% of the time, it's not going to be filled from the pharmacy. Another 25% of the time, it's not going to be used as prescribed, right? And so if that's the, the status quo, and we're so happy with it, and we're so happy covering medications under that paradigm, we could just do phenomenally better. And here's the other flip of the switch, right? It's about access, inclusion, diversity, and all of those other aspects. 
My whole mission and the whole mission of this company is to democratize access to high quality solutions, digital therapeutics. And each word has, it has its own meaning for me. So the democratization right now, the systems are set against uh, actually, right? The disenfranchised populations from yes. getting access to care. Unless you live in the ivory towers, I happen to be in Boston, right? Where we have these massive mega tertiary um, academic healthcare systems. Most people don't. And most people aren't afforded the luxuries, right? Of tertiary care services and psychologists and nutritionists and counselors and specialists and subspecialists, right? We have specialists for the right hand surgery almost. It's oh really God. crazy. <laughs> what, what's, what's going on? Um, but when you could, when you could put that into a scalable solution and put it on a device that pretty much everyone does have. Yeah. And if you don't, there are government programs, affordable connectivity program, colloquially the Obama phone services and data plans and some impending legislation that will give data coverage and hardware coverage for everyone. This really breaks the entire mold now that everyone gets access to a highly scalable and personalized solution. That's what we're in it for. Yeah. I am really excited by this, Shaheen. I think that, you know, I mean, it's ubiquitous that almost almost everybody has a cell phone that's, yes. you know, iOS 13 and above or even iOS 10 and above. Right. Or, oh, yeah. or if you're an Android user, no, 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 no <laughs> animosity towards you whatsoever. Right. I used to be one myself. Uh, but, you know, it's it's impossible to survive in today's world without a smartphone. And it's become so available that I think that having these types of uh, therapies available uh, to everybody is is a necessity. Uh, but then also, as you pointed out, like broadband is now, you know, in the political sphere where that's something that should be uh, commissioned as a utility. Uh, and I think that that's a phenomenal way to improve access. And and you are absolutely right. Like I used to work on the west side of Chicago, which was like at one point was the murder capital of the city. Oh, yeah. uh, not a great reputation. Not a great had, stat to have. Not yeah. a great stat, <laughs> but nonetheless, right? Like we would have patients uh, that really did not have a doctor. They did not have a pharmacist. Yeah. We were the one shop in town that served like a 10 or 20 block radius. Uh, and I mean, you know, major metropolitan area, that's really difficult. So I, I, I'm really excited by this. And, you know, I'm always curious to know because, you know, we're talking about something so novel that it doesn't fit the norm, right? The FDA yeah. has its own policies as it relates to how to phase one through phase four uh, and all of these, you know, the NDA application, right? And here's something that's different. It's good to know that they've created this 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 safe space for for novel therapies to be uh, you know introduced. But I'm hoping that there's going to be some more support as these therapies prove themselves to be able to say, listen, government stamp. Because without that, it's always that that struggle with payers, right? Like, hey, how do we you know how do we substantiate this? Um, and I'm not sure you know if Click Therapeutics is you know having those conversations with payers to talk about. Listen. Here's the documentation. Here's what we can prove to you. Uh, are there things that you know that you have in terms of studies that you've already delivered to the uh, Anthems, the United Health, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield? Oh, very, very much so. And and I'll be remiss if I don't take advantage of the opportunity. You you kind of discussed that there might be some companies that have declared insolvency in the prescription digital therapeutic space. Hey, they they were pioneers, right? In introducing a novel concept, but we've seen from the days of my, uh, MySpace and Blockbuster, right? Early pioneers don't necessarily stick around, right? Yeah. You need something that's iterative, something that actually, um, you know, breaks down the friction and pain points and uses big data and technology, make personalized engines and and something that goes beyond that, that first mover type of effect. And that's what I think Click is at. We also, we don't outsource, like we develop everything in-house and that means we know, we know the patients the best. 
when I'm talking about we know the patient's best, unlike a pharma company that develops a, a compound, right? You really can't co-develop that compound with a patient, right? Correct. You might say, well, <laughs> maybe I'll show you the protocol of a study to make sure it's not too burdensome for you. Or a drug delivery device, right? If it's an auto-injector, is it easy for you to use human factor types of research? Mm -hmm. We completely flip the switch in that even when we're deciding what areas to go into. We have the patient's voice front and center in a co-design fashion. Wow. And we go back and forth, you know, with them. So I, I think it's ingrained, right? When you design solutions with patients that are bona fide therapeutics, then you don't have that you know, that, that friction, animosity, antagonism, are you supplanting my meds, um, uh, right? Or you're not going to work into my workflow. You're not really addressing my total unmet need and the burdens. You're just doing something that the industry does. You don't have that inherently going on board. Yeah. I'm I'm really excited by this, Shaheen. I, I would love to be able to say and share with the listeners, like, how can somebody learn more? Like if they wanted to see a video of what this looks like, or maybe have some understanding, like I obviously I can send them in and I'll share what is your website, number one, but are there other like social media platforms or is there like a demo where somebody can say, you know, how do I learn more about this? And then we'll come back to some of the other questions, but sure. that's like a big one for me. Yeah, I, I think that that's a great question. You know, folks often want to see demos uh, of our solutions that we're, we're selective in which we offer, you know, demos for investors or boards of potential pharmaceutical partners. And, and there's, there's a reason, right? Not not just to have secrecy and being stealth mode just for the sake of being that. Because, you know, you wouldn't necessarily demo your pharmaceutical uh, drugs, right, out into the mass audience. No, because our, our technology is actually changing brain. Uh, brain neurophysiology and sometimes even structure, right? So beyond function to structure, I don't want to just release these out in the masses uh, and not collect the safety, efficacy, and tolerability data. That would not be prudent for a regulated company that has safety mar monitoring, digital pharmacovigilance, and everything else that goes on to it. I actually would just be succumbing to the consumer centrism. Yes. And that's why we don't do that. However, we do have, you know, some solutions like Clicatine that, that could be used because it has, you know, through the exemption with the FDA that actually has more ubiquitous uh, kind of, um, of usage and less restrictions related to it. I will say this, you know, we have right now two active phase three studies, registrational Ooh. trials in schizophrenia, okay. uh, partnered with Beringer Engelheim, and then one that we're doing entirely on our own, which is in migraine space. If, you know, folks on the line want to participate in our studies, feel free to do it at go and click therapeutics.com and you can get to the landing page to participate in those studies. Hey, once these become um, approved, you know, clear type of solutions, then they're just like any other uh, type of therapy. We would hopefully, uh, a, a clinician prescribes it, it gets dispensed, um, you know, the, through the eligibility checks and digital pharmacy, essentially, and you get your hands on the solution. But barring the efficacy, safety, tolerability signals, we just don't want to release these, you know, um, highly efficacious solutions out in the wild. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. And I appreciate you sharing that with me. So hopefully the listeners that want to participate in your trial will be able to do so uh, through the mediums that you've just shared with us. And we'll certainly be able to put uh, your website on our on your episode's uh, webpage. So that way they have visibility and, and access to that as well. You know, when you think about the future, right, obviously the optimism and the, the potential of what this is going 
going to do for uh, the industry is is remarkable. Like, how do you see things? I mean, if you could like write the future, uh, you know, in the next two, five years, like how do you see the industry of digital prescription therapeutics changing? Like, what is it that you see? What is it that you envision coming next? So that way it'll either expand the industry um, or how patients, pay, uh, provider and payer adoption will look like. Like, what is the world like in 2025 or 2026 for you when you think prescription digital therapeutics? Oh, I appreciate at least keeping the horizon to 2025, 2026. Sometimes I get 10 years out yeah, in these conversations <laughs> and I'm like, hey, exactly. That now that that is just a crapshoot. So here we, we have to probably look at history before we kind of forecast the future, right? So every 20 years or so on in therapeutic development, we have a new category of medicine. And you could think about it from small molecules entry to biologics entry with monoclonal antibodies yes. to genomic editing and CRISPR-based technologies to mRNA-based solutions and vaccinations and therapeutics. And now we're at the cusp, right? And I do think that the intervals between each of these categories are shrinking from two decades to one and a half decades to a decade, yeah. essentially. Yeah. And hopefully it doesn't take always a pandemic, right? To accelerate <laughs> to these, these type of efforts. Yeah, fingers crossed. Uh, Exactly. So that's why by 2025, 2026, you'll have bona fide solutions that are out there that have evidence packages on par, if not better, right? Safety, tolerability better, but I'm talking about the efficacy on par, if not better than existing therapeutics or prescription digital therapeutics that actually are unlocking undruggable targets. That means there are no other therapeutics for this disease or this aspect of the disease. That is what you're going to see in the next couple of years. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I can see the market for orphan, you know, I mean, for, for like how orphan drugs today, you know, manage like a, such a small percentage, like this would be a huge win. I, I'm excited for the future, Shaheen. Like you've like reinvigorated my 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 faith in, in healthcare uh, and, and the way that it can be. I'm super, super happy to hear that. Uh, and so, I mean, Shaheen, we spent quite a bit of time with about talking about you and Click Therapeutics and the world of prescription digital therapeutics. Um, you know, I, I like to actually, before we pivot away from this, you know, like Click Therapeutics itself, you know, how, how did you learn about this opportunity? You know, how was this opportunity introduced to you? And, and maybe you can share with us a little bit about some where you were at that point in time, who introduced it to you and, and what went through your mind when you were like, wow, this is something different. And maybe I, I'm going to say yes. Why would you say yes to it? And, and what were the factors that went into your decision making process? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I relish the opportunity to address this because when I started this conversation, I said that I held many hats and had a whirlwind of, of careers. And it actually all came a culmination into, into this, this job, right? And into this opportunity. I, you know, I was a former department chair of neurology. I actually founded the department and recruited uh, around 600 faculty, made the medical school, created and got it accredited through the uh, LCME, this was in Southern California, in an area that has the lowest physician per capita ratio, San Bernardino County. And it's the largest geographic area in America, geographic county, I should say, in America, extending from the borders of Riverside, Los Angeles County, all the way to Clark County, so where Vegas is, okay. essentially, wow. right? <laughs> and it, 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 it was just dying for literally, I'm saying dying or suffering for a academic healthcare system that's community-based and embedded, right? Highly Latino population, one that's respectful and, you know, with the, the, the cultural parameters there and systems of care and beliefs and practices over there. And that's exactly what we've did. It's been, 
you know, starting from that opportunity and then moving actually into Virginia and not Alexandria, Virginia, the border of D.C. I'm talking about Southwest Virginia, Roanoke and Blacksburg and Virginia Tech, <laughs> the heart of the heart of Appalachia with the opiate epidemic. And you can read yeah. the books and now movies yeah, yeah, created yeah. about it. it. It was generated over there. It was former Surgeon General Eric Schumacher and myself that actually created this whole community-based participatory research program. I was chief of uh, pain management and professor of neurosciences over there. And we created this, this whole paradigm into kind of reverse that that goes on board. I learned the principles of how to influence policy change using a community-based program too. And then I made myself way back up to Boston and, and been in drug development and very fortunate to have advanced maybe six or seven different drug candidates into market, some of them even from discovery or, or, or early or late stage clinical development into the market. All were first in class. Many of them were first ever for that disease, essentially. But what I've got to realize is I always had the digital hat on in each mm. of these right? But I was always this outsider. So I'm, I'm maintaining a digital health or digital therapeutics hat, but largely in a pharma or medical device, a tangible medical device company. And I couldn't effectuate the changes that I wanted from within. And so I entered the digital therapeutics realm. So actually, I joined a company called the Learning Corp, uh, which is an umbrella organization at Reflection Health and so on. We had a number of FDA cleared devices in physical rehabilitation, uh, post-surgery, post-stroke, cognitive linguistic therapy that's actually being widely used by the VA system right now in traumatic brain injuries and so on. I, through, through that experience and on the conference roadshow, of course knew about click therapeutics. I had at least at that time, the industry leading partnership with Atsuka Pharmaceuticals tackling major um, depressive disorder, MDD. Wow. And that's exactly the disease I would target with my drug, um, you know, development days here. So I was like, wow, now you got a company, you got a mission, and frankly, you got funding, right? And a co-development mm -hmm. partner. Mm -hmm. It's the perfect marriage. And it was on the brinks of, of, of establishing additional partnerships. So I kind of joined. And, 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 and I joined because of maybe three reasons. Like one is perfect timing, right? It's always about timing, 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 and the world is ready for it. Pharma partners were ready for it. And now there is, is a suitable company that wants to do it the right way in the evidence package. Two, it was a cultural fit. Like this is a high energy, high productive. Hey, it's based on Tribeca, New York. So it has that vibe, <laughs> yes. you know, that energy, you know, part of it. You have fun while doing it. In fact, our pastime is, is karaoke. And that just happens to be naturally mine, <laughs> mine too. We, 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 you know, no pun intended, we clicked on, on many reasons there. But the, but the third aspect, and here I'm going into something kind of personal, but I you know I share it because it's it's meaningful and it's and it's shaped my life. My my older brother has chronic paranoid schizophrenia, oh. and when I learned that we have the potential to actually create a therapeutic where no therapeutic has succeeded, it's not because no therapeutic has gone there before. There are many drugs that have tried to tackle the negative symptoms. You know, where people, and, and this is where most of the suffering from schizophrenia comes. Uh, I'll go in a little bit of a challenge uh, tangent, but people are familiar with positive symptoms of schizophrenia, hallucinations, right. delusions that get into movies and the beautiful mind and all of that, you know, and racing thoughts. And maybe you get creative in that process. Sure. Likely not. I mean, not, it's a destructive yeah, it's not as common as, yeah. <laughs> that, that's right. It's Hollywood. That <laughs> you got it. 
But most of the time, in fact, I would say the 98% of the time, they're actually living in negative symptoms mm. where they lose things that they once had. I'm talking about the motivation, the pleasure, the ability to engage socially, right? All of these have fancy names for it, but I'm breaking it down to you. And there are no approved, there are no clear therapeutics to treat this aspect, which is the biggest driver for disability in schizophrenia. And schizophrenia is not a niche disease. 0.8% of the world's population has that. And actually, disproportionately, they are also a healthcare utilization, enormous rates of homelessness, and everything else that's associated, right? Mm -hmm. So it should be a big, big clinical development push. And drugs have tried to do it. But here's the thing. It's easy to suppress positive symptoms because you know there's better, Iqbal. You just have to... Yes. suppress neurotransmitters right and it's okay if you get sedation because apparently that's been an accepted that's, yeah, side effect yeah. <laughs> you know it's sad right but when you start now trying to activate the brain well how do you selectively activate it we're not putting someone into psychosis right you're getting someone out of their negative symptoms this is where digital cracks the code with precision medicine mm -hmm. and when i was at the cleveland clinic would use precision medicine a lot but what i noticed it was in it was actually impersonal medicine because we were saying genomics and genetics and proteomics determines your fate and future. No, it really does not. We need to take into account biobehavioral aspects yes. and then deliver targeted, intelligent, adaptive-based therapies. And that's what we do with digital therapeutics. So it was those three aspects, right? Um, the robustness and the scientific integrity, the cultural fit and fun. And the third thing is my own experience with schizophrenia as a family member before I was a doc. And now being able to create a solution for for folks like my brother, yeah. you know, Shane, I just want to appreciate the the transparency in this conversation, right? Like, I think a lot of the times when we have guests, like they will talk about a personal story that's impacting them and maybe their experience. Uh, but you know, have, being a, a caregiver for elderly people and they do have mild schizophrenia as well, uh, you know, yeah. seeing those challenges and seeing those symptoms, you know, as a as a provider uh, really changes you. Um, and so, imagining you in that role as as a, as a brother, older brother, younger brother yes. for you? Yeah, I'm, I'm the younger brother. So he's my older brother. And, and, and sadly, I, as a, a teenager, I saw those early signs. Yeah. And we just didn't have any interventions to offer at that time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. I, and again, I appreciate you bringing the story to the show, right? Because I think it's it changes the nature of why people, you know, helping people understand the perspective better. Uh, that's really remarkable. Shaheen, when you, you know, when you think about where you are today, I know we're we're all very successful individuals that have, you know, seen a lot, experienced a lot, come through a lot, and we've invested our own intelligence, knowledge, and abilities to overcome certain challenges, right? But at the end of the day, like it's not because of us that's brought us to this level of, of success or brought us to this level of influence, right? There are other people along the way that have really either opened the doors or in some cases, like my case, like shoved us through a door uh, because they felt that, you know, we had some something you know and i always ask my guests to talk about an individual that they would like to thank or acknowledge for their contributions to that success uh, shaheen is there somebody that you would like to personally thank on the show for helping you either see things differently um, or bringing you into areas where maybe you would not have been able to do so by your by yourself yeah i really appreciate this opportunity and just like you said there's no single individual that that anyone right who who has any level of success can call out but you're forcing me to do it so i will <laughs> and, and you know it happens to be you know I've, I've i've known this individual for for over 15 years in 
in research settings and clinical settings and friendships and in, in, in a variety of ways. And our paths have always crossed. And, and, and now I think it's as, as, as strong as ever. And, and, and to a degree, I don't even think this individual knew their, their influence on me up until more recently, over the last three, four years, over this 15-year journey, actually. And, and, and that's actually a lesson. I, I think you should always actually thank your mentors, show them exactly how they've guided you, you know, the right way or, or the wrong way, right? And, and how you've learned from, from even those challenging type of experiences. Um, his name, his name is Stuart Tepper. Dr. Stuart Tepper, he is a neurologist. He's a headache specialist. He is one of the, he's the OG. Of the headache specialist, <laughs> I will call it. Truly, okay. if I, if you know, there, there's there's a handful of folks that you would say, oh wow, these are headache and migraine specialists. He's he's one of those. Uh, Tepper, just use his name. Uh, I've just really had the privilege of of working, knowing him, and calling him my friend. And and the reason he's been so influential from from the times I was even a trainee, a mm. resident, right at the Cleveland Clinic, he afforded me opportunities that no one else. My first clinical trials, my first phase three randomized studies, essentially, my first service um, in, in, in really going, taking deep dives into where the unmet need is in patient care, like taking a step back. When, when you practice medicine or you're a clinician, you often singly focus at the patient in front of you, which is good. You need to make that lasting connection, but you can't reflect now and say, hey, how can I improve now patients like this, the whole population, the whole clinic? And if you do, those are fleeting thoughts because you have to now move on to your next individual right, patient right. who is suffering. He always allowed a reflection opportunity is, how can we just learn from what we had and develop a new therapy, patent a new medical device, a new way to do it? The most innovative thinker and, and, and beyond being a, a theorist, he actually applied it and studied it and put solutions out there in the market. Um, he has had so much influence in every career decision I made. They almost said, like, what would Stu say in these in these scenarios? <laughs> when I had the, no, truly, when I had the opportunity to become a department chair or become a curricular dean and establish a medical school, I was thinking of him. He's like, hey, it's always now expanding knowledge base, lifelong learning, interprofessional education, and so on. When it was the open epidemic, he said, hey, this is exactly where you can make a mark. Uh, on on this intense suffering that's environment and the new therapeutics that's like ingrained in his space. Now, when I said around two, three years ago, how we kind of in full circle came back to this and he understood the influence. When, uh, you know, around three years ago, when I, when I joined Click Therapeutics, mm -hmm. he immediately came to top of mind because I took all those learnings and experience and I looked at headache patients and sufferers. One, headache became a bona fide category of diseases, right? Used to be, oh, everyone has it, you're yeah. suffering, it's just tension type and so on. These are complex neurological diseases like migraine and cluster, right? So there was a whole paradigm shift and there was this verge of new therapies now targeting, not just symptom management of headaches using typical analgesics, right? And opiates and NSAIDs and those type of receptors, even tryptan-based things, CGRP inhibitors, things that are looking at now the, 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 the neurochemistry and neurobiology and disease. So I said, perfect time to bring them into the fold. Let me tell them now the power of digital therapeutics. And in his true self, the highest skeptic possible that digital <laughs> intervention could do anything. And I understood because actually at that point, there were these medical devices that claimed to stimulate 
you know, externally parts of your brain. And they had studies of less than a hundred patients. They weren't controlled and all of these other things. And I was like, Hey, Hey, I actually love this. I don't want just yes men on my scientific advisory board. Yes. Right. I need naysayers, but to have a little bit of an opening, right. That yes. like anything I present with you that you're just going to say, no, I, I need you to have a healthy level of skepticism. And he said, okay, you got me. So I presented our plans, our vision. In fact, I presented a one, two, three-year plan uh, three years ago to him. And I said, okay. this is the way that we're going to do this. I click. This is how I'm going to build up my team. I'm going to show that. I've had the pleasure every every quarter now almost to going back to him and going in back and forth. Now we have our migraine acid in a phase three registrational study that has achieved FDA breakthrough device designation. Where the FDA is now almost partners with us. They recognize migraine is a debilitating disease that doesn't have good treatment options. And two, they recognize our technology is a breakthrough in treating, right? And this type of disease. I, we, we couldn't have done it without uh, Stu's help, Stuart Tepper. That's uh, incredible. If I, if I could close, because I do want to close on some advice here. Everyone in this world should have mentors that are internal in your organization but even more importantly, external. Sometimes the internal opinion gets so biased because how do we retain you and keep you and meet you the needs of the, of the internal apparatus, that, that entity, that organization, that structure? The external ones are so holistic, much yeah. less biased, and the ones that will follow you when you move from org to org, institution to institution. So I, I do it in my own organization. Everyone needs to have external mentors. And I trust everyone else should do that. Yeah, I, I love that strategy, and I and I concur wholeheartedly because I feel that you are right. If you only surround yourself with people from the inside, they're only going to be able to give valuable advice uh, or perspectives from what they see around them. But when yeah. you bring in like other people that have a, either you know a completely different experience, um, or as you pointed out, a holistic experience or holistical perspectives, uh, it yeah. really adds value to the conversation. So amazing, amazing story, and Dr. Tepper. Uh, you know, I'm so glad that you were able to, uh, you know, introduce Stu to the audience and hopefully they'll be able to, you know, learn from this type of story and, and look for their own Dr. Tepper uh, if they're not already seeking Dr. Tepper online today. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. He's I'll taken. Hey. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> He's taken. Hmm. Uh, Shaheen, what do you envision for yourself? Like, you know, as a leader, as a as a clinician, like we're always looking to improve ourselves. Uh, and so, you know, maybe there's a professional goal that you've established that you would that you're working on today. But maybe in you know 12 or 18 months, if I were to call you back on the show and you could say, hey, Iqbal, yes. do you remember when I said like I was really working on this because I felt that this initiative or this idea was very important to me? I'm happy to say I've achieved that today, now in 2025. What is that one professional goal that you hope to achieve in the next 12 or 18 months? Yeah, this is it. And it comes back to my to, to, to our entire company's mission statement to democratize access to high quality digital therapeutics. And I have witnessed this throughout every advancement of a new category of medicine. There's this inertia where there's this lag. And the lag is actually dictated based on training training of physicians, of pharmacists, of NPs, of PAs, and so on. If you are not going to get into the curriculum of professional schools and allied schools, yes. then you're going to have to wait the 10 to 15 years, right? Essentially, for to get market adoption and to get folks to really understand the potential and actually you know, prescribe these, these types of solutions and have familiarity with these solutions. So within that time horizon, I want to advance that. We already made a lot of, of, of headways here, so I confidently could say this. A very strong, 
academic collaboration, if, if not one institution, a consortium of institutions where prescription digital therapeutics, how they're developed, how their integrated development plans are created, um, how they are um, uh, uh, almost perceived by, by payers, providers in the community, you know, how you appraise them, what's the evidentiary packages, how they could unlock you know, some of the undruggable targets and diseases that we have right now that just had so many failures. I would love for all of that in an unbranded, you know, type of way to be put into interprofessional education. So, yeah, I'm a physician, so maybe I'm biased. I'd love to start off with medical school training, but I think it needs to be happening interprofessionally across professional schools. Definitely. I, I may take you up on that, Shaheen. So, I'm on yes. uh, at, at my alma mater, Midwestern University in Downers Grove. Uh, you know, we've got a full health school, uh, health campus, right, with all of our different uh, uh, interdisciplinary teams. So after this, we'll certainly have a conversation. And I would love to introduce you to the administration because they're always looking for great, you know, in information to bring in. Uh, and I think that this would be a huge, huge win. So we'll certainly discuss that as well. But that's a phenomenal aspiration to have. Like, how do we start young? How do we help educate the next generation of providers so that they're not scrambling, you know, five, 10, 15 years into their practice to go, oh, I didn't know this was available. And my patients have, you know, not had the benefit of all that was available at, at that. Oh, point. yes, very much so. And I even remember the days when biologics were being introduced. Yes. We had no clue exactly. Well, neutralizing antibodies and how are these large molecules and crossing blood brain. We just didn't have that level of familiarity. And all the research said, do you want to know what, what gets prescribed out there in the real world? Well, you look at what was taught in their training, in that <laughs> physician's training. I'm talking about fellowship and residency. If you don't effectuate change over there, you're going to have a generational gap. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great observation, Shaheen. I love that. You know, as a leader, right, like you have, you know, other, other uh, you know, directors, VPs, but then you also have so many other people that look up to you within the organization. And, you know, what I what I always find is, is that, you know, we're always trying to you know help them along their leadership journey uh through conversation through experience through through trial and error right but then we're also learning ourselves uh by learning from others is there an individual or a resource that you feel has been pivotal in your leadership journey maybe it was a book or a video or a conference that you attended that really changed your perspective on what leadership was and, and if so what was that and, and do you recommend that to others Oh, I, I love the, the, the question. I, I mean, everyone does have their kind of their own style that needs to be adaptive to the folks that you, 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 you have in your, your, your team or your circles or your units, essentially that's happening. Mm. I mean, it comes down to the very basics, right? Like goal oriented behavior or people have created operating systems around it, but really what you're doing is tracking that you have an objective and you have a timeline and there are pieces of the puzzle with interdependencies on that. Um, two, have fun and be in a respectful work environment. And that's what leaders should actually kind of exude, right? If you have a military type of organization that's going after objectives, that's wonderful, but I've not seen a kind of highly successful in our industry, essentially. So you apply that type of layer. And then third is, if you know people on a personal basis, then you know why maybe, look, you've, you've hired people that are highly competent, competent and hopefully have a cultural fit. Mm -hmm. But in the midst or course of their, of their, of their practice, right, in, in your company, if they are not succeeding, most likely there's something either going on 
internally within them or you're not affording them the right resources. Mm -hmm. Essentially, that's going on in some sort of mix. Mm -hmm. And if you keep yourself materially distanced, right, and are, are not I, I, and don't understand both of those dynamics, I think it creates a lot of friction. So I'm actually a very hands-on type of person, not to be micromanaging, but it's more so actually to allocate the appropriate resources, the rail guards and dare I say autonomy, right, in those practices. And actually, what am I doing that's disabling the practice? Let me stop doing that too. Uh, that's going on board. Those are the three elements of leadership. Now, when it comes to books, you might want to look at grit. Like grit is everywhere. It's something that we I found in every successful person. You know, there's a multitude of books, um, blogs, papers. They maybe if you don't want to buy a book, you can actually just read a bunch of things and podcasts essentially <laughs> on this subject. Um, but but it truly is now because I've seen highly passionate individuals that don't have that stickiness quality mm -hmm. and that perseverance quality, mm -hmm. and then vice versa, right? Like perseverance individuals, but actually aren't really passionate about what they're kind of doing and they're they kind of could do everything, but not with the vigor. But it's this combination of the two that I create, that multiple of the two is this grittiness uh, that it, you have. And I uh, look for that. Yeah. Uh, so for number one, I appreciate you recommending yeah. that book, right? I've read it. Yeah. It's a phenomenal. It's a phenomenal read. Uh, and it's very, very, very helpful for, for people like me that have led teams. And it's like, look, this is what we're trying to examine, right? I, I want to pivot here just a little bit because I feel like this is a great conversation. Uh, and it's certainly not meant to be a, a, a universal statement. Statement, but I find that there are more people that are passionate in the short term uh, run, but they yeah. lack perseverance, right? And and I think that that's different from my generation because you know either you know creativity wasn't valued 20, 30 years ago as much oh. as it is today. So you sort of just kind of pushed forward and you just waited for the next opportunity. But I find that while there's a lot of great creative ideas, new, new novel, you know, ideas and, and initiatives, right? Like the, the length of that uh, investment is like half uh, or shorter. And is, if that is the case, and we're talking about trying to combine passion and perseverance, how do we like teach that to, you know, our, our employees, our next generation of clinicians, how do we help them to understand that, yes, you can still have passion and it may wane a little bit over time, but it's important to stay with it because it's going to be better for everyone in the long run. I, I love the question. And, and, and this comes back to engagement. And right, and, and it's, it's all this engagement science. And that's why every, every, almost every, you know, developed country has this nudge unit right? That is going to create behavioral change. Look, we might employ it for filing taxes because we have this, you know, voluntary type of system you know, that you have to do and exactly. Other in, uh, countries might employ it for prevention screening and cancer screening and things mm -hmm. like that. There are biobehavioral, economic, psychosocial factors that are responsible for engagement, but I'll, I'll break it down. That was just like a long little phrase that describes every domain in the world. It comes down into fulfillment and a shared functional goal. It's actually, this is the basic building block for a clinician-patient relationship too. Do you know why most patients don't actually carry out the uh, management plan of a clinician? It's because we, they don't think and they don't see a shared functional goal. Oh. Your goal is different than my goal, right? So if you have a difference in goals, it doesn't matter, right? What your plan is, I'm not gonna achieve it because I'm not getting at the, the same endpoint that's there. So you have to find out what's that common purpose. What was the initial driver of the passion that may wear off there? And you have to switch it or uh, amplify it or things of that nature that's going on in a manager. You'll find out. 
if someone is capable, unless there's a real big pathology, I would say that could happen there. If they, if they had the initial capability of that passion, you could reinvigorate it with another driver using that basic motivator that's coming on board and it shared up shared functional goal. People's lives change, right? That shared yeah. functional goal could have been financial motivators and productivity or bonus motivators and things of that nature. Those are more short-term. But if they came on board your company more for the long-term vision for something that's going to achieve a population level benefit, that's, I think, is more sustainable. And frankly, when I do my recruitments, I look for that more sustainable motivating factor. But then we do employ short-term incentives and so on to actually write. So it's this whole thing. There's almost like this bolus that, that comes on board for short-term. And then there's this basal. Uh, type of rate that I'm infusing that's going up. You are speaking to, bring it back. to the yeah. pharmacist at my heart here, Shaheen. I know. Oh, my God, that's so awesome. Pharmacist. Exactly. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I love it. Shaheen, over the course of time, you know, you've uh, you've had you've been put into situations and maybe you voluntarily walked into situations, right, where you realize that this was a little bit bigger than what maybe you were expecting. Oh, yes. uh, and there were lessons that you learned from that. And as a leader, you know, we can read books, we can, you know, learn from others through conversations, right? But the ultimate teacher is really when you fail in order to learn that lesson. Can you share with us a leadership lesson that you learned the hard way? Oh, yes. I I would say a, a, one of the lessons that I've learned was actually early on, I would stay within my lane. And it's interesting, right? So you're, you're the physician or the clinician scientist kind of on board and kind of limit your contributions to your professional discipline. That was I, and I'll say, actually, I obliterated that halfway through my career and said, actually, no, uh, there's a multitude of reasons why I, I kind of made that change. I would say, actually, a lot of the ideas I had very early on, if they were adopted, maybe would have actually led to better scenarios and so on. Mm. Two is maybe that that silent learning period where I stayed in my lane, I actually saw a lot of, of those failures, right? So you don't necessarily have to be accountable for those failures for you to learn from those, those kind of failures early on. And that's what I actually love. Like the failures that you don't have to actually own, but you've learned from, they're probably even, they're, they're great. Um, because they allow you actually now to pivot. But around halfway through, then I was like, hey, I'm actually only going to be in organizations that value me as a global contributor. Mm. Yes, I'd be, I'd be more accountable for the scientific and clinical functions internally and externally facing. That's accountability. But if my contributions are not respected across the board, right. whether it's on the fiscal discipline of the company, right, or in financial stewardness, um, or in business development activities, commercial activities, you name it, then that doesn't align with me because I don't have that narrow mental block or flex right or lack of flexibility that actually limits me even into the job that they brought me to do and if i stayed within my lane i need to have that expansiveness essentially for for me to contribute the fullness and so long story short it's actually yeah you're going to learn a lot from your own mistakes but but also learn from other other people's mistakes that are around you when you get comfortable don't feel frail don't feel afraid to actually step outside of your classical lane to make mm. contributions. And if your environment does not support that, maybe that is not the right environment for you. Yeah. I'm so glad that you said that, Shaheen. I think that a lot of times people are very hesitant, reluctant, or just simply scared uh, to be able to talk about 
for example, if you're a clinician, well, you know, why are you contributing your opinion towards the business operation side or the yes. financial side or the HR side? But you actually have experienced something in this role where that is, you know, something that they haven't. Uh, and so, you know, being able to, to learn from other people's mistakes is a very, very key, uh, key, uh, key factor in being successful. And then sharing something that is universally beneficial to the organization, I think, also makes a massive difference. Uh, Shaheen, we've talked a lot about so many things. I always like to give my guests the opportunity to, you know, maybe impart one last piece of advice or a conversation that maybe we haven't had yet. If the listeners today are, you know, like kind of tuned out and sometimes I, you know, that sometimes that happens, but if they were to walk away with just one actionable item or one piece of advice that you would say, listen, you know, we've talked about, you know, so many different things, but if you only remember this one thing, this is it. What would that one piece of advice be for the listeners today? I, I think the one piece of advice is, is this holding a healthy skepticism. And when I say a healthy skepticism, you, you have folks that are in both, uh, it's like a spectrum, right? There's, some are accepting of every new technology or science mm. or, or theory that's out there. Uh, I, I think that's doing a disservice essentially, right? Because you, you, you need to have actually some of the basics, fundamentals, improving it out and adoption. And on the flip side, you have folks that close off everything that's considered progressive and innovation. If you yourself ground yourself in healthy skepticism, then I think you can appeal actually to the entire spectrum uh, that's out there when it comes to your colleagues, when it comes to your, your, your relationships and social environments, um, you know, when it comes to any aspect of, of, of life and career that, that comes on board. Uh, in, in, and if it's not natural to you to actually be in that area, then you have to do self-checks. And I have to monitor myself. There are some areas uh, in some domains where I'm like, I have to open up my mind, essentially. So before I go down there, it's conscious activity. It's okay. I'm doing a business development activity, let's say in a scientific field. And I feel like, oh, I know this because I was a proteomics PhD researcher for 10 years in, in Harvard or something of that nature, right? And I would do it. But I, if I came in closed-minded, of course, no one's going to sway me. I'm not going to be odd by the sciences and I'll never find a use case in my organization. But if you open the doors a little bit and come with this open mind of healthy skepticism, it's beautiful. You let the entry in. And then I might be more bullish on digital health technologies, right? And so, but now if I have to close the door a little bit and play a little hardball and show me, okay, your data privacy and how you actually, your models are being trained in the ML and, and stuff of that nature. So it's this constantly reappraisal of where my skepticism and acceptance scale is. Essentially, that that's one piece of advice I would encourage. Yeah. I, I think that's great advice, Shaheen. I, I find that, you know, sometimes people have uh, you know either one or the other, right? It's like either both extreme. They're purely skeptic yes. uh, without an open mind. Um, or they are openly just willing to accept anything without questioning it. And, and both of them yes. are negatives. So I'm glad that you pointed that out. Shaheen, I mean, Dr. Lakhan, it's been a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being on the show, giving us some insights and talking about the great things that Click Therapeutics is doing. I really look forward to you know speaking with you again. And as always, I continue to wish you much success. And I look forward to seeing you continue to take healthcare to a higher level. Oh, Iqbal, it's been a wonderful pleasure. Keep doing what you're doing for lifelong learning for your audiences. And hey, we're in a hyper collaboration mode. You've seen that we want to tackle health uh, inequities and disparities, introduce ourselves into interprofessional education, uh, and we're hiring as well. So if anyone's interested in any, any aspect of those, come just to our website. Yeah.
Thanks for joining me on this episode of the Healthcare and Hire podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to follow and subscribe for more. I'm your host, Iqbal Acha, and I invite you to connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. Let me know what you thought about this episode or my show in general. Also, visit me at www.achainternational.com to learn more about how I help healthcare professionals and healthcare leaders advance their career, build a better brand, and create a leadership legacy. I'll be back next week with another episode. But until then, let's keep working to take healthcare to a higher level.